Well, good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Daniel, and I'll be doing the scripture reading today. We are going to be reading 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're just going to be covering two verses, uh, verses 12 through 14. It's just going to be the first half of 14. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 reads, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his king, kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is God's word for us today. Before we pray here, just a brief word. Usually at Redemption we do it's called expository preaching, and so uh, what will typically happen on a Sunday is uh, a member will read the passage like that, and I'll devote the entire sermon just to explaining that passage. This week, we're in the middle of a more topical series, so it's not going to work that way. I got some feedback last week. I thought you were going to cover the passage. It works a little bit differently. Uh, that reading will be part of our, pass, our sermon today, but, and you'll see why I think it will be important. But I'm not just going to unpack that today. We're today in a, in a series on missions. And our goal in this series is to see really the biblical foundations for missions. Why should we care about all these nations of the world? And why do we need to take the gospel to them? And so with that said, uh, let me pray for us now and, and we'll get, get going today. Father God, we thank you. We praise you, even for the words that were just read, this incredible prophecy made to the greatest king of Israel, about this future hope of a, of a coming king who would reign forever. As we saw last week, God, in this world full of raging nations that belong to you, we pray that today you would help us to see in the scriptures how your son, Jesus Christ, is the answer to these raging nations. He is the king you have sent to rule and to reign over all of them. And so open, God, our eyes to behold these glorious things in your word today. And use your word to empower us and to, to send us out into the world for the sake of the glory of our King, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, a handful of years ago, I took a trip to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I don't know if you knew this, but originally the very first Congress of the United States met in, in Philadelphia, not in Washington, D.C., and so I was able to tour the original Congress Hall. I stood in that room where that first Congress met. And, and as I did, the tour guide explained to me a monumental event that took place in that very room. And here on the screen is a painting of that event. It's a very famous painting. So this is the room I was standing in. And, and this is a picture of the event that he, that he told us about. This is a picture of George Washington choosing to resign his post as the commander-in-chief after the Revolutionary War, not long after we declared our independence even. And one historian points out why this was such a monumental event, and here's what she writes. She said, during the war, the Revolutionary War, Congress had granted George Washington powers equivalent to those of a dictator. And he could have easily taken solitary control of the new nation. Indeed, some political factions wanted Washington to become our nation's new king. His modesty in declining the offer and resigning his military post at the end of the war, he says, fortified the Republican foundations of the new nation. Now, when she says Republican, she's not talking about the Republican Party there. She's talking about the fact that we are a republic 
which simply means that we are led by elected officials rather than being led by a king. And this event, she's saying, is really what began this long-standing tradition of, of that mode of government in our country where we have peaceful transitions of powers that are carried out by the will of the people as a result of elections. That was a new and novel idea, and in many ways it can be traced back to this event that happened in that room that I was standing in that day. Uh, but even just the idea of a man who could have been king Choose, could have been king, choosing not to be king was a revolutionary idea at the time as well. And for many, it was a promising sign of a bright future where nations would no longer be oppressed by tyrannical kings because the people would be free, free to choose their leaders, free to hold their leaders accountable. This, in large part, is what we celebrate today on the 4th of July, for the sake of our independence. And it turns out, it, at least in my opinion, our system of government has proven to be the most peaceful and prosperous means of governing a nation that this world has ever seen. To this day, we live in an incredibly safe country with incredible opportunities for people to learn and to grow and to build a life for themselves, especially compared to other places of the world and especially compared to the history of the nations. I love this country. I'm incredibly proud of the political innovation that it was. I think it's amazing. Uh, I am happy to celebrate our independence today. And yet, the nations still rage in the United States of America. The nations still rage here. Last year, we saw city blocks set on fire. Uh, we saw a mob storming the Capitol, ironically, to try and prevent this peaceful transition of power I've just described. Turns out, as great as this system is, it is not enough to stop our raging and to usher in a better, greater, eternal kingdom. And this is why we need to look at the Bible to see what this work of missions is all about. Uh, we, we saw last week um, that... The nations belong to our God. And what I want you to think of when it comes to this series, it's a four-week series, but really, think of it as a play. And it's a three-act play. And the goal last week was simply to set the stage for the play, that we would know what's about to happen in this theater. Uh, and what we saw last week is that this world is full of these raging nations that belong to our God. And over the next three weeks, we're going to see the three acts of the play in which God does his work to try and undo that. And so act one today is called The Nations Have a King. Uh, act two next week is going to be called The King Has a Church. And act three the following week is going to be called The Church Has a Mission. And the goal of this series, church, is to show us again from the scriptures why the gospel must go out to all nations and the role that we have to play in that process. In particular today, I want us to consider a big question together, and, and that question is, is simply this. What do the nations really need to stop their raging? What's this going to take? How's this going to happen? Last week, again, in many ways, we saw the Old Testament is the story of God raising up one nation through whom he would redeem all of the other nations. Today, we're going to see how God set out to actually do that. 
We're going to see how those dots are connected in the Bible. We're also going to see what, it mean, what that means for the work of missions. Uh, we are going to trace today a very interesting theme from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and that is the theme of a king. In particular, in part one, when we look at the Old Testament, what we will see is that there was a point in time in which God's nation, the nation of Israel, wanted a king. And then we'll see how that unfolded, and then we'll fast forward to the New Testament to see that God, in fact, sent a king of all nations. So to begin here in part one, we're going to see in the Old Testament, again, God's nation wants a king. We're going to jump in here somewhat in the middle of the story of the Old Testament. This is after God delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he had led them through the wilderness into the promised land. He established them as a nation. It's starting to work, right? And at first, at this stage in Israel's history, they were led by figures who were called judges. And this was a particularly tumultuous time in Israel's history. It did not go very well at all. There was this cycle in the book of Judges in particular where the people would, would fall into sin. They would appoint a judge. He would call them to repentance. They would have some improvement, and then they would fall back into sin, appoint another judge, and, and the whole thing would just spiral off into, into more and more chaos. In fact... After a while, one of these judges named Samuel became very old, and he appointed two of his sons to be the next judges, and, and it turns out those sons were terrible leaders. It says in 1 Samuel that they took bribes, they perverted justice, and so Israel got just fed up with this system of government. And so what happened is they looked around at the other nations around them, and they said, look, these other nations, they all have kings. And that must be a better way to do this. We need one of, of those. And so look with me uh, on the screen at what uh, it says in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is what happens. It says, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, this judge, at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, they say, appoint for us a king to judge us, and this is the key, like all the nations. So in other words, they're basically trying to say, look, this whole God's covenant nation thing, it's just not working, right? It's not working. Uh, it sounds great on paper, but look, we're a mess, right? What we need is a king. What we need is a king like these other raging nations of the world. And, and, and of course, Samuel was a faithful judge, so he was not happy about this. But listen to what God says to Samuel as a result here in verse 7, the same chapter. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For, here's why, they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Do you see that? I just want just to pause here. I want to point this out. This is one of the most important details of this sermon. We can see here God's plan was that God himself was supposed to be the king of Israel. And it's as if God is telling Samuel here, listen, the nation of mine that I've risen up here, they, they, they want a king because they're not content to have me as their king. So don't take this personally. There's a lot more going on here than you might think. Just do what they say. Give them their king. But then God adds this in verse 9. He says, now obey their voice only, he says. You shall solemnly warn them 
and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. In other words, God is saying to Samuel, look, it's fine, don't worry about it, give them their king. And then it's like he kind of whispers at the end, but this is not going to go very well. This is going to be terrible. And it, it did go terribly. It, it, it was not very fruitful at all. Right away, actually, it was a disaster. For their first king, Israel found the tallest, strongest, most handsome man that they could. His name was Saul, and they made him king. And in case you just don't have much leadership experience, those are usually not the most important qualifications uh, of a good leader. And it turns out he was a terrible king. Uh, He caused all kinds of problems. But then after Saul, something strange happened. A scrawny little shepherd boy named David rises to power to become this unexpected king. And David had his faults as well. He was certainly a sinful man, but by and large, he is regarded as Israel's most beloved and revered king in their entire history, uh, other than Christ. Um, And he is called in the scriptures a man after God's own heart. And so under King David's leadership, Israel flourished, And they actually kind of moved into what would become their most prosperous time in their history. So what I want you to see is that this king situation of Israel started out with a pretty rocky start. But then it started to have a promising trajectory here with King David. We see a glimpse, hey, maybe this will be okay. In fact, when David was king, God sent a prophet named Nathan to David to prophesy about basically uh, the future of his royal heritage, okay? He basically sent Nathan to say, here's what's going to happen to your throne, David, after you die. And this is our reading for today, what Daniel read for us. God prophesied to David through this prophet Nathan, and he said, read it again, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Listen to this last part. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So I just want to point out a few important things here. God is promising that one of David's descendants that comes up after him will be this great king. But notice, he's not just going to rule for a little while. This kingdom is never going to end. It's going to go on and on forever and ever. So apparently, he's not going to die. I don't know how that's going to work, right? Uh, And then also, I want to point out that this son of David, this descendant of David, will not just be a son to David. God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now listen, that's, that's a pretty promising future for a kingdom, right? Some divine God-man will come and reign forever as king. Like, that's, that's looking up, right? Most people would hear that and they think, yeah, well, this is the kind of kingdom God could use to redeem all the nations of the world, right? And again, remember from last week, that is the goal, right? That all nations would remember and turn to their God. But there's this strange irony that runs throughout the rest of the story of the Bible. It doesn't go that way. After David died, his son Solomon was king, and he did okay, kind of. Got really swept up, though, in riches and power and sex. And then by the end of that next generation, after Solomon, the entire kingdom was divided into two. 
There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. A few generations later, that northern kingdom would be sent into exile. They fell to the Assyrians. A few generations later, the southern kingdom would fall to the Babylonians. And so by the end of the Old Testament, Israel's experiment with earthly kings had completely backfired. They found themselves without a king at all. They found themselves as sojourners, as exiles, in their very own land even. And it would go on this way for centuries. The Persians would eventually overthrow those Babylonians. The Romans would eventually overthrow those Persians. And as time kept going on and on, many lost hope that the nations would ever remember and turn to the Lord God of Israel. Many lost hope that God would send this eternal son to reign as Israel's king forever and ever and ever. That seemed like it was just slipping away from them and drifting further and further until we get to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we see God sends a king for all nations. Here's what the angel says to Mary in the very first chapters of the Gospel of Luke. This is after some 400 years of basically radio silence from God. While all the Jews were still living in exile under the rule of enemy nations, here's what an angel comes and says to Mary, this Jewish woman. He says, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now listen to the angel's description of Jesus. It says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him, what? The throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see what this angel is doing? He's connecting the Old Testament dot to this New Testament dot. He's saying, Mary, listen, the child you're about to have is the king that God promised to King David. He is the one who will be a son to, the, to God the Father, and he will reign forever and ever his kingdom will have no end. This is how the New Testament begins. And then we read that Jesus came with a very simple message. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, the author Mark summarizes it for us in this way. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, he's saying, guys, the waiting is over. It's over. The kingdom you've been longing for all these years, since the hope of the Old Testament kingdom, it's, it's, it's here, it's coming. I am here to be that king. In, in fact, this word gospel, it's such an important word for us. We call ourselves a gospel-centered church. Uh, we talk about it all the time. But we want to talk about what, that, what does that word gospel even mean? Actually, the word gospel actually means a king's pronouncement of good news. Uh, gospels were actually fairly common in the ancient world. Anytime, for instance, that a king would win a victory in battle or, uh, for instance, if a royal son was born into the royal family, basically a, a gospel from the king would be published. It would be as, as if a decree was sent out from the king, and it would kind of make this big statement to the people. It would kind of say, right? Good news from the king. The battle has been won. 
good news from the king. The royal son has been born. This is what a gospel is. And so to believe in the gospel of God's kingdom is to believe that Jesus is this eternal king that God has promised. It is to believe that through King Jesus, God will reclaim the many nations that belong to him. But when most Jews heard about this kingdom of God, especially in the first century, they just thought, okay, cool, yeah, let's overthrow Rome, let's take over, let's get back to that Old Testament Israel thing, the kingdom of Israel, so that God can finally use that to fix all these nations, right? But here's the problem. When Jesus taught the Jews about this kingdom, it became very clear that was not the plan. That was not the plan. It's a very different kingdom. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 8. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west. In other words, he's saying people are going to come from all over the place. From all the nations of the world, they will come and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this kingdom does not just belong to Israel. This kingdom is somehow for all nations, people from near and far, people from east and west, and it wasn't even confined. It wasn't even just for his day. Somehow this kingdom is going to include saints who had long since been dead, even in Jesus' day. Abraham, Jacob... These men were ancient figures in Jesus' day, and somehow we're going to sit and have dinner with them? This is a strange kingdom, and it gets even more strange. Usually, uh, if you want to start a kingdom, rich people are very helpful uh, for obvious reasons, right? And yet uh, Jesus says this to his disciples in Matthew 19. He says, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're thinking this is an earthly kingdom, you'd think, wait, what are we, what are we talking? We need horses. We need chariots. We, we, we need buildings. You're not going to let rich people in? No, no, Jesus says, no. Easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, which is impossible. That, that, that's not a thing that can happen. He says, yeah, that's how it's going to go for rich people in this kingdom. Meanwhile, of children, he says, oh, no, no, they're not too, I'm not too important for them. He says, let them come to me, he says, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. This is a strange kingdom. But I want you to notice something here. In Jesus' kingdom, contrary to what we saw last week, in Jesus' kingdom, there is no raging. There is no raging. This is, this is not a kingdom of violence. This is not a kingdom of power at all. Jesus teaches us in his kingdom to love even our enemies. Okay, but what if they slap you in the face? Turn the other cheek, right? Whatever you do, don't rage. So you don't need to be rich to be in this kingdom. Actually, it's kind of a liability to be rich. Uh, This kingdom is not going to need an army at all, right? It's a strange kingdom because, no, no, Jesus taught, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who get persecuted for righteousness sake. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so over and over again, Jesus frustrated and confused the Jews because they were waiting for an earthly king. They were waiting 
for a military leader to come and lead them in conquest against the Roman Empire, to set them free from the oppressive rule of King Caesar, to establish an earthly kingdom like they used to have with David. But again and again, Jesus kept saying in one way or another, basically, nah, right? No, that's not what I came to do. Uh, My kingdom doesn't work that way at all. And so understandably, many people became a little bit frustrated. They started to wonder, well, listen, what is this then? What are we doing here? Uh, What kind of king are you? Um, When are you going to rise to power, Jesus? What is your plan? What's your plan? Eventually, Jesus made the Jewish authorities so mad, they accused him of blasphemy, And they dragged him before Pontius Pilate. I want you to consider the irony of that just for a minute. God's chosen nation accusing their own king of blasphemy against God and dragging him to a leader of an enemy nation in order to hold him accountable for that. Just consider that, okay? That's meant to be ironic. Uh, Pontius Pilate is the governor of this world superpower, the Roman Empire. He's basically a king of that region of the Roman Empire. And, And when Jesus comes to Pontius Pilate, This is what Pontius Pilate basically says to him. More or less, he says, look, I don't have time for your religious stuff. I'm not a Jew. Don't bother me with all that theology stuff, okay? Just tell me this. Are you a king or not? You you, you trying to overthrow the Roman Empire or not? Because I don't want to get in a theological debate with you. I just want to know, are you trying to overthrow us or not? And here's what Jesus says to Pontius Pilate. Listen carefully to this. It's on the screen. Jesus says, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. They would have been raging outside to prevent this. My my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. (laughs) In other words, he's saying, yes, I am a king. I am. But listen, my kingdom is just, just a little different. It doesn't, it doesn't work like all these other raging nations like, like yours, like King Caesar and all that. It doesn't work that way. And sure enough, soon after this exchange with Pontius Pilate, Jesus' kingdom would get even more strange. When Jesus got his crown, his followers were very confused by this because his crown was not made of gold and it did not have diadems. His crown was made of thorns. When he was lifted up as king, everyone kind of winced because he was not lifted up on a throne. He was lifted up on a cross to die. Above his head to mock him, they put a sign that read, the king of the Jews. It even tells us that that sign was written in three languages. Why? So that all the nations in the region could read it and make sense of it and understand it. I'm convinced one of the most beautiful ironies in all of the Bible is that sign that hung above Jesus' head on the cross. Oh, the irony of that sign. (laughs) Oh, how that smug little joke would soon backfire, right? Because the point of that sign was to say, here's your king, Jews. Here he is. Look what happens when your pitiful little king comes under the crushing force of King Caesar 
Caesar is the real king of Judea, not this wimpy, pathetic, little poor man's rabbi. That's what this sign was meant to say. It's meant to say, hard to imagine your God using a king like this to redeem all those nations, isn't it? Isn't that really hard to imagine now that he's hanging here, bleeding and dying, crucified? So they thought, that is, until after being dead for three days, This King Jesus came back to life. No one could have possibly imagined how these events would lead to an eternal kingdom until, being resurrected, Jesus gathered his disciples and like the resurrected king he now was, he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is something a king would say, is it not? It almost makes you wonder, okay, that's, what's next? How's this whole kingdom thing going to happen? Here's how he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, why all nations? Oh, because those nations belong to Jesus now. They always belong to our God. We saw that last week. But now God has appointed Jesus as the king of these nations. He has seated him on the throne of heaven. He has given him all authority over everything. And so what I want us to see today, church, is this. When Israel asked for a king so long ago, they were very misguided in asking for it. It took much longer than they thought it would. But in the end, they got much more than they bargained for. Because God himself came down from heaven in the flesh to be their king. The father sent his son to reign forever, not just as king of Israel, but as king of all nations. And he, church, King Jesus, is what we all really need to stop our raging. So this is what I want us to see today. Our big idea, the whole sermon in one sentence is this, is that Jesus is the only king who can rule the nations. This is why he's come. Now, his kingdom does not look like a geopolitical nation anymore. We can see that in the scriptures. It looks a lot more like redeemed people who believe the gospel, following King Jesus, and living out the principles of this kingdom among all nations. This is God's plan to redeem his long-lost nations. And this is what missions is all about. It is about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that King Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so listen, happy 4th of July. (laughs) It's a great country, but this is far better news. This is far better better news. With this in mind, as as we look out on a lost and broken world, and as we consider what this missions thing is all about, I just want us to consider, again, what do the nations really need? What do they really need in light of everything we've seen? Many people have many different ideas about how to fix this world. According to some, what this world really needs is, is aid or relief. According to some, what this world really needs is industry, economic growth, Some would say it needs education. Some would say it needs a different mode of of government. But in light of what we've just seen, I want to share three things 
that this world, that the nations really need. And these three needs ought to shape the way that we think about missions, and they ought to shape the way we go about the work of missions. The first thing the nations need is this. The nations need a gracious king. The nations need a gracious king. As the sinless son of God, as the king of all creation, Jesus easily could have come down from heaven to wage war on all these nations and to judge the sins of mankind. Easily could have done that. He easily could have pulled out the law and condemned all of us for the many ways that we violated it. Easily. Easily he could have scolded the nations for forgetting and turning from the Lord. And if he was like most other earthly kings, he probably would have done these things. But he did not. He did not. Instead, he came to lovingly pursue the nations. He came to fulfill the law for us. And he came to extend his grace to sinners like you and me. And so church, above all else, this is what we have to offer the nations. We have the grace of a heavenly king. This is the good news of the gospel we have to share with the world. The king of all nations has come. He's lived a perfect, sinless life. He died a sacrificial death to bear the weight of all sin. He has taken our sin with him to his grave. He has killed it. He has crushed it. And he has risen again in victory. Now, what did we do to deserve that? Nothing. Nothing. We didn't deserve it. In fact, we are the ones who have rejected and killed him. (laughs) So why did he do it? Here's why he did it. Because this man is the gracious king we all so desperately need. Jesus, church, has conquered the raging of the nations in the most unexpected way by letting a pagan empire kill him so that he could give us the eternal life that we do not even deserve. He absorbed the rage of the nations. He took it upon himself. He nailed it, all of it, to his cross. And this is God's solution to the darkness and sin of our world. Not just a cup of water for the thirsty. Uh, Not just a job or education for the powerless, not just medical care for those who are in need, but the grace of a crucified king, A, a king who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Church, the day will come when King Jesus does return to wage war and to judge all sin. We are not told the day or the time. We're told we won't know the day or the time. We're simply told to be ready, but for now, until he does return, the nations still have a chance to receive his grace. They still have a chance to hear the gospel and repent of their sins, to trust in Christ. They still have a chance to stop all their raging, be reconciled to God, and to enter his kingdom, but only if someone goes to them with the good news of our gracious king. This is God's plan to gather the nations into his kingdom. 
This is what the nations need more than anything else, church. They need the redeeming grace of King Jesus. Next, the nations also need a righteous king. They need a righteous king. Uh, No matter what we do, kings have always tried to rule the nations and failed (laughs) one way or another. Today, we celebrate the fact that we literally declared independence from the king of Israel. That's what today is, not Israel, England. (laughs) Got my history mixed up. We have declared our our independence from the king of England. Why? He failed. He failed. Uh, We created a new system of government that does not depend on a king at all. It has not eradicated sin from our nation, or it has not ushered in this kingdom of God. Sin is alive and well in the United States, because the truth is, whether you have an earthly king or a republic by the people, for the people, any people who try to rule the nations in any capacity are just fallen, sinful people themselves. We cannot be the solution to the raging of the nations because we are the reason the nations rage. But Jesus came as a righteous king to show us how to really have dominion over the earth as God intended. He showed us this is what that was actually supposed to look like. This is how that was actually supposed to go before the whole fruit, fall, sin thing. And it turns out it does not look like perverting justice and becoming, uh, protecting rather your own self-interests or winning at all costs. It does not look like that. Uh, Jesus was not a deceptive king who said whatever he needed to say to stay in power. No, he was an honest king uh, who spoke the truth of God's word even when it cost him his life. He was not a pompous king who only had time for influential people. No, he was a lowly king who offered hope and healing to those with no power whatsoever. Jesus was not a murderous king who violently crushed those who stood against him. No, he was crushed so that unsubmissive, angry people like us could live forever. Jesus is a righteous king, holy and blameless in all he does. He is more concerned with the glory of his Father and the good of his people than even with his very own life. This should change the way that we interact with the world. And it should also change the way that we think about missions. The goal of missions is not to impress the nations with our faith, The goal of missions is not to entertain the nations with our spirituality. One important goal of missions is simply to let the righteous life of Jesus shine through us. This is why our personal holiness, our obedience to God are essential to the work of missions. If we come preaching this grace of King Jesus, but that grace has not changed us and made us actually live like Jesus, if we just go on raging like the rest of the nations and and vying for our own comfort and stability, then people will never pay attention to our gospel. We need to model his righteousness, and we need to put his steadfast love on display for all the nations to see. This is why historically missionaries have done all kinds of things that really don't make much sense in the eyes of the world because they expect us to be building an earthly kingdom. 
all kinds of things that really don't seem to benefit the missionaries at all. We call these often works of mercy and compassion. Uh, For instance, missionaries often do care for orphans. They do provide health care. They do feed the hungry. And they do care for refugees. But it's not because these acts in and of themselves will redeem any sinners or because these are the key to the undoing of the raging of the nations. It's because the world needs to know and they need to see that these missionaries, these strange people from a different nation, they're not here to set up some new colony. Uh, They're not here to rise up against the powers that be. They're not here to stir up more rage among the nations. No, they're there on behalf of their righteous king, whose kingdom is not of this world. This is an important part of missions. In particular, it's an important part of the spiritual quality, or what I would call the kingdom ethic that we are supposed to embody as we take the gospel to the nations. The nations need to see the righteousness of their new heavenly king. And the design here is that they would see it in us as we go to them to bring the gospel. And finally, church, the nations need an eternal king. They need an eternal king. They need a king that's not gonna die. See, every once in a while, you actually do get a decent king. Uh, not a perfect, holy, righteous, gracious king, no, sure, but, but a good king who, in spite his, of his flaws, seeks justice and does good for the people. Uh, this 4th of July, we might uh, recall some of our heroes, like a George Washington or an Abraham Lincoln. Both of these men did some incredible things, really great things, but then, of course, they died. And you see, this is a huge problem, right? Because it's rare enough to get a decent king, but then when you do get a decent king, before long... He dies. Uh, When JFK was assassinated, it was as if the entire country, in many ways the world, just sort of stopped on a dime. Uh, And and some would say that that event was one of the most consequential events in the history of our modern world. Why is that? It was because when a king dies, his nation hangs in the balance. The people wait with heavy hearts and a pit in their stomach. No, no. No, they think this, this cannot be. Panic starts to set in. Will there be riots in the streets? <laughs> Will there be chaos in the economy? Right? This is all too familiar in a world of raging nations. And church, this is why the nations need an eternal king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to King Jesus. And listen, he already died. He's been there. He's done that. He's come back from that. And he will reign in this way for that reason forever and ever and ever. This king has conquered death. He is an eternal king. So listen, the world can go on raging all it wants. His authority will never be contested. His throne will never be conquered. His kingdom will never end. It will keep on spreading all the more conspicuously as the world goes on raging until he finally returns to establish his kingdom once and for all on earth as it is in heaven. Church, Jesus is already on the throne and he will be there for all of eternity, and this should have a huge impact on the way that we approach missions. Now, first, it should cause us to slow down and get a little bit of perspective, right? Because what the nations do not need 
are more angsty religious people who think it's their responsibility to save the world. That is not what the nations need. Our goal is not to fill the Great Commission in this week <laughs> or, or even to do it in our lifetime. There's a lot of rhetoric about these things. We have no control over that, none. We are not going to lower the bar on sound doctrine or, or a biblical philosophy of ministry in order to send more missionaries and make more disciples and plant more churches as fast as we possibly can because fast is good, right? Sometimes we get really excited about missions, but we lose this eternal perspective. Uh, it causes us to cut any number of corners, make all kinds of compromises in this work to the point where a lot of Christians even just tune out the work of missions. It's like, I don't even want to deal with that. It can also lead us to use the politics of raging nations as a means of advancing the heavenly kingdom of God. It can make all kinds of messes if we just try to speed this thing up and add intensity to it. Here's the truth. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, seated on the throne of heaven, and overseeing the work of the Great Commission for two millennia, two millennia, before any one of us were even born. Unless he comes back soon, uh, he will likely be seated on that throne overseeing that very same work until all of us are long since dead. We need that perspective when it comes to missions. Uh, this does not mean that we should lack urgency. We should give ourselves to the work of missions with passion, but what it means is we need to give ourselves to this work with wisdom and with care. Uh, we do not need to infuse our vision for missions with all kinds of emotional tactics and emotionalism and these uh, passive-aggressive pleas to guilt because no one is doing enough and no one is radical enough and no one really cares about the kingdom like they should, right? We can just slow down, <laughs> take a deep breath, and listen, let's pray more, <laughs> Let's pray more. Let, let's pray that God would make us fit for this. Uh, let's pray that God would raise up missionaries even in our church because none of this depends on our energy and our intensity. None of it. All of it depends on this eternal reign of King Jesus. The, the world does not need us and our strategies and our statistics and our infographics. We love infographics and missions. Maps, dots, graphs, charts. We love it. The world doesn't need that. They need an eternal, resurrected king. They need a righteous, gracious ruler who offers them the eternal life that only he could give because he has it, and in him is eternal life. So what I want us to see today, church, as we look at the Bible and we consider the work of missions, what I want us to see is that there is no political leader or system of government that can fix our world. There isn't, and there won't be, because Jesus is the solution to a world full of raging nations. And this is why we need to take his gospel into all the world, because in him, the nations have a king. And he is the only one who can rule us all.